Chapter 9, Part 1 of Widershins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fanny. Widershins by Oliver Onions. Hick Chaset. A Tale of Artistic Conscience. Introduction. As I lighted my guests down the stairs of my Chelsea lodgings, turned up the hall gas that they might see the steps at the front door, and shook hands with them, I bade them good night the more heartily that I was glad to see their backs. Lest this should seem but an inhospitable confession, let me state first that they had invited themselves, dropping in in ones and twos, until seven or eight of them had assembled in my garret, and secondly, that I was rather extraordinarily curious to know why, at close on midnight, the one I knew least well of all had seen fit to remain after the others had taken their departure. To these two considerations I must add a third, namely, that I had become tardily conscious that if Andreovsky had not lingered of himself, I should certainly have asked him to do so. It was to nothing more than a glance, swift and momentary, directed by Andreovsky to myself while the others had talked, that I traced this desire to see more of the little Polish painter. But a glance derives its import from the circumstance under which it is given. That rapid turning of his eyes in my direction an hour before had held a hundred questions, implications, criticisms, incredulities, condemnations. It had been one of those uncovenanted gestures that hold the promise of the treasures of an eternal friendship. I wondered as I turned down the gas again and remounted the stairs what personal message and reproach in it had lumped me in with the others. And by the time I had reached my own door again, a phrase had fitted itself in my mind to that quick ironical turning of Andreovsky's eyes, a too brute. He was standing where I had left him, his small shabby figure in the attitude of a diminutive colossus on my hearthrug. About him were the recently vacated chairs, solemnly and ridiculously suggestive of still continuing the high and choice conversation that had lately finished. The same fancy had evidently taken Andreovsky, for he was turning from chair to chair, his head a little on one side, mischievously and aggravatingly smiling. As one of them, the deep wicker chair that Jameson had occupied suddenly gave a little creak of itself as wicker will when released from a strain, his smile broadened to a grin. I had been on the point of sitting down in that chair, but I changed my mind and took another. That's right, said Andreovsky in that wonderful English which he had picked up in less than three years. Don't sit in the wisdom seat. You might profane it. I knew what he meant. I felt for my pipe and slowly filled it, not replying. Then slowly, wagging his head from side to side with his eyes humorously and banteringly on mine, he uttered the very words I had mentally associated with that glance of his. A too brute, he said, wagging away, so that with each wag the lenses of his spectacles caught the light of the lamp on the table. I too smiled as I felt for a match. It was rather much, wasn't it, I said. But he suddenly stopped his wagging and held up a not very clean forefinger. His whole face was altogether too confoundedly intelligent. Oh no, you don't, he said peremptorily. 
no getting out of it like that the moment they've turned their backs no running what is it no running with the hare and hunting with the hounds you helped you know i confess i fidgeted a little but hang it all what could i do they were in my place i broke out he chuckled enjoying my discomfiture then his eyes fell on those absurd and solemn chairs again look at them the art shades in conference he chuckled that rash seated one it was talking half an hour ago about sketches in silver and grey nice fresh green stuff to shut him up i told him that he would find cigarettes and tobacco on the table sketches in silver and grey he chuckled again as he took a cigarette all this perhaps needs some explanation it had been the usual thing usual in those days twenty years ago smarming about arts and the arts and so forth they we as apparently andreovsky had lingered behind for the purpose of reminding me had perhaps talked a little more soaringly than the ordinary that was all there had been jameson in the wicked chair full to the lips and running over with the color suggestions of the late edward calvert gibbs in a pulpy state of adoration of the less legitimate side of the painting of what and magnani who had advanced that an essential oneness underlies all the arts and had triumphantly proved his thesis by analogy with the law of the correlation of forces a book called music and morals had appeared about that time and on it they we had risen to regions of quite high lunacy about colored symphonies orgies of formless color thrown on a magic lantern screen vieux enough at this time of day a young newspaper man too had made mental notes of our adjectives for use in his weekly i nearly spelt it weekly with an a half column of art criticism and and here was andreovsky grinning at the chairs and mimicking it all with diabolical glee sketches in silver and grey word pastels lyrics in stone he chuckled and what was it the fat fellow said a sarin song and marble well i'll get along i should just be in time to get a pint of beer to wash it all down if i'm quick bah he broke out suddenly good men build up form and forms keep the arts each after its kind raise up the dike so that we shan't all be swept away by night and nothingness and these rats come nosing and broing and undermining it all a true brute well when you finished rubbing it in i granted as if you didn't know better is that your way of getting back on them now that you've chucked drawing and going in for writing books phooey hi well i'll go and get my pint of beer but he didn't go for his pint of beer instead he began to prowl about my room pryingly nosingly touching things here and there i watched him as he passed from one thing to another he was very little and very very shabby his trousers were frayed and the sole of one of his boots flapped distressingly his old bowler hat he had not thought it necessary to wait until he got outside before thrusting it on the back of his head was so limp in substance that i verily believed that had he run cautiously downstairs he would have found when he got to the bottom that its crown had sunk in of its own weight in spite of his remark about the pint of beer i doubt if he had the price of one in his pocket what's this brutus a concertina he suddenly asked stopping before the collapsible case in which i kept my rather old dress suit i told him what it was and he hoisted up his shoulders and these things he asked moving to something else 
They were a pair of boot trees of which I had permitted myself the economy. I remember they cost me four shillings in the old Brompton Road. And that's your bath, I suppose. Dumbbells, too. And oh, good Lord. He had picked up and dropped again as if it had been hot, somebody or other's cart with the date of a day written across the corner of it. As I helped him on with his overcoat, he made no secret of the condition of its armholes and lining. I don't for one moment suppose that the garment was his. I took a candle to light him down as soon as it should please him to depart. Well, so long and joy to you on the high road to success, he said with another grin, for which I could have bundled him down the stairs. In later days I never looked to Andreovsky for tact, but I stared at him for his lack of it that night. And as I stared, I noticed for the first time the broad and low pylon of his forehead, his handsome mouth and chin, and the fire and wit and scorn that smoldered behind his cheap spectacles. I looked again, and his smallness, his malice, his pathetic little braggings about his poverty seemed all to disappear. He had strolled back to my hearthrug, wishing, I have no doubt now, to be able to exclaim suddenly that it was too late for the pint of beer for which he hadn't the money, and to curse his luck. And the pygmy quality of his colossalship had somehow gone. As I watched him, a neighboring clock struck the half hour, and he did even as I had surmised, cursed the closing time of the English public houses. I lighted him down. For one moment under the hall gas, he almost dropped his jesting manner. You do know better, Harrison, you know, he said. But of course you're going to be a famous author in almost no time. Oh, ça se voit. No garage for you. It was a treat the way you handled those fellows, really. Well, don't forget us others when you are up there. I may want you to write my life some day. I heard the slapping of the loose sole as he shuffled down the path. At the gate he turned for a moment. Good night, Brutus, he called. When I had mounted to my garret again, my eyes fell once more on that ridiculous assemblage of empty chairs, all solemnly talking to one another. I burst out into a laugh. Then I undressed, put my jacket on the hanger, took the morose boots from the trees and treat those I had removed, changed the pair of trousers under my mattress and went, still laughing at the chairs, to bed. This was Michael Andreovsky, the Polish painter who died four weeks ago. 1. I knew the reason of Mashka's visit the moment she was announced. Even in the stressful moments of the funeral, she had found time to whisper to me that she hoped to call upon me at an early date. I dismissed the amanuensis to whom I was dictating the last story of the fourth series of Martin Renard, gave a few hasty instructions to my secretary, and told the servant to show Miss Andreovsky into the drawing room to ask her to be so good as to excuse me for five minutes, to order tea at once, and then to bring my visitor up to the library. A few minutes later she was shown into the room. She was dressed in the same plainly cut costume of dead black she had worn at the funeral, and had pushed up her heavy veil over the close-fitting cap of black fur that accentuated her Slavonic appearance. I noticed again with distress the pallor of her face and the bestread rings that weeks of nursing had put under her dark eyes. I noticed also her resemblance in feature and stature to her brother. I placed a chair for her. 
the tea tray followed her in and without more than a murmured greeting she peeled off her gloves and prepared to preside at the tray she had filled the cups and i had handed her toast before she spoke then i suppose you know what i've come about she said i nodded long long ago you promised it nobody else can do it the only question is when that's the only question i agreed we naturally she continued after a glance in which her eyes mutely thanked me for my implied promise are anxious that it should be as soon as possible but of course i shall quite understand she gave a momentary glance round my library i helped her out you mean that i am a very important person nowadays and you are afraid to trespass on my time never mind that i shall find time for this but tell me before we go any further exactly how you stand and precisely what is it you expect briefly she did so it did not in the least surprise me to learn that her brother had died penniless and if you hadn't undertaken the life she said he might just as well not have worked in poverty all these years you can at least see to his fame i nodded again gravely and ruminated for a moment then i spoke i can write it fully and in detail up to five years ago i said you know what happened then i tried my best to help him but he never would let me tell me mashka why he wouldn't sell me that portrait i knew instantly from her quick confusion that her brother had spoken to her about the portrait she had refused to sell me and had probably told her the reason for his refusal i watched her as she evaded the question as well as she could you know how queer he was about who he sold his things to and that for those five years in which you saw less of him scofield will tell you all you want to know i relinquished the point who scofield i asked instead he was a very good friend of michael's of both of us you can talk quite freely to him i want to say at the beginning that i should like him to be associated with you in this i don't know how i divined on the spot her relation to scofield whoever he was she told me that he too was a painter michael thought very highly of his things she said i don't know them i replied you probably wouldn't she returned but i caught the quick drop of her eyes from their brief excursion round my library and i felt something within me stiffen a little it did not need mashka andreovsky to remind me that i had not attained my position without uh, let us say splitting certain differences the looseness of the expression can be corrected hereafter life consists very largely of compromises you doubtless know my name whichever country or hemisphere you happen to live in as that of the creator of martin renard the famous and popular detective and i was not at that moment disposed to apologize either to mashka or scofield or anybody else for having written the stories at the bidding of a gaping public the moment the public showed that it wanted something better i was prepared to give it in the meantime i sat in my very comfortable library securely shielded from distress by my balance at my bankers well i said after a moment let's see how we stand and first as to what you're likely to get out of this 
It goes without saying, of course, that by writing the life, I can get you any amount of fame, advertisement, newspaper talk, and all the things that it struck me Michael always treated with a special scorn. My name alone, I say, will do that. But for anything else, I'm by no means so sure. You see, I explained, it doesn't follow that because I can sell hundreds of thousands of you-know-what, that I can sell anything I have a mind to sign. I said it confident that she had not lived all those years with her brother without having learned the axiomatic nature of it. To my discomfiture, she began to talk like a callow student. I should have thought that it followed that if you could sell something, she hesitated only for a moment, then courageously gave the other stuff its proper adjective, something rotten, you could have sold something good when you had the chance. Then, if you thought that you were wrong, I replied briefly and concisely. Michael couldn't, of course, she said, putting Michael out of the question with a little wave of her hand, because Michael was, I mean, Michael wasn't a businessman, you are. I'm speaking as one, I replied. I don't waste time in giving people what they don't want. That is business. I don't undertake your brother's life as a matter of business, but as an inestimable privilege. I repeat, it doesn't follow that the public will buy it. But, but, she stammered, the public will buy a pill if they see your name on the testimonial. A pill, yes, I said sadly. Genius and a pill were, alas, different things. But I added more cheerfully, you can never tell what the public will do. They might buy it, there's no telling except by trying. Well, Scofield thinks they will, she informed me with decision. I dare say he does, if he's an artist. They mostly do, I replied. He doesn't think Michael will ever be popular, she emphasized the adjective slightly, but she does think he has a considerable following, if you could only be discovered. I sighed. All artists think that. They will accept any compromise, except the one that is offered to them. I tried to explain to Mashka, that in this world we have to stand to the chances of all or nothing. You've got to be one thing or the other. I don't know that it matters very much which I said. There's Michael's way and there's mine. That's all. However, we'll try it. All you can say to me and more I'll say to a publisher for you, but he'll probably wink at me. For a moment she was silent. Then she said, Schofield rather fancies one publisher. Oh, who is he? I asked. She mentioned the name. If I knew anything at all of business, she might as well have offered the life of Michael Andreovsky to the religious tract society at once. Hmm. And has Mr. Scofield any other suggestions? I inquired. He had several. I saw that Scofield's position would have to be defined before we went any further. Hmm, I said again. Well, I shall have to rely on Schofield for those five years in which I saw little of Michael. But unless Schofield knows more of publishing than I do and can enforce a better contract and a larger sum on account than I can, I really think, Mashka, that you'll do better to leave things to me. For one thing, it's only fair to me. My name hasn't much of an artistic value nowadays, but it has a very considerable commercial one and my worth to publishers isn't as a writer of the lives of geniuses. I could see she didn't like it, but that couldn't be helped. It had to be so. 
Then, as we sat for a time in silence over the fire, I noticed again how like her brother she was. She was not, it was true, much like him as he had been on that last visit of mine to him, and I sighed as I remembered that visit. The dreadful scene had come back to me. On account, I suppose, of the divergence of our paths, I had not even heard of his illness until almost the finish. Immediately I had hastened to the Hampstead home, only to find him already in the agony. He had not been too far gone to recognize me, however, for he had muttered something brokenly about knowing better that a spasm had interrupted. Besides myself, only Mashka had been there, and I had been thankful for the summons that had called her for a moment out of the room. I had still retained his already cold hand. His brow had worked with that dreadful struggle, and his eyes had been closed. But suddenly he had opened them, and the next moment had sat up on his pillow. He had striven to draw his hand from mine. Who are you? he had suddenly demanded, not knowing me. I had come close to him. You know me, Andreovsky, Harrison? I had asked sorrowfully. I had been on the point of repeating my name, but suddenly, after holding my eyes for a moment with a look, the profundity and familiarity of which I cannot express, he had broken into the most ghastly haunting laugh I have ever heard. Harrison, the words had broken throatily from him. Oh, yes, I know you. You shall very soon know that I know you if... Uh, if... Uh... The cough and rattle had come as Mashka had rushed into the room. In ten seconds, Andreovsky had fallen back dead. 2. That same evening, I began to make notes for Andreovsky's life. On the following day, the last of the fourth series of the Martin Renards occupied me until I was thankful to get to bed. But thereafter, I could call rather more of my time my own, and I began in good earnest to devote myself to the life. Mashka had spoken no more than the truth when she had said that of all men living, none but I could write that life. His remaining behind in my Chelsea garret that evening after the others had left had been the beginning of a friendship that, barring that lapse of five years at the end, had been for twenty years one of completest intimacy. Whatever money there might or might not be in the book, I had seen my opportunity in it the opportunity to make it the vehicle for all the aspirations, faiths, enthusiasms, and exaltations we had shared. And I myself did not realize until I began to note them down one type of the subtle links and associations that had welded our souls together. Even the outward and visible signs of these had been wonderful. Setting out from one or other of the score of garrets and cheap lodgings we had in our time inhabited, we had wandered together, day after day, night after night, far down east, where, as we had threaded our way among the barrels of sauce herrings and the stalls and barrows of unleavened bread, he had taught me scraps of Hebrew and Polish and Yiddish. Up into the bright west, where he could never walk a quarter of a mile without meeting one of his extraordinary acquaintances, third music hall managers, hawkers of bootlaces, commercial magnets of his own faith, touts, crossing sweepers, painted women. Into Soho, where he had names for the very horses on the cab ranks and the dogs were slumbered under the counters of the sellers of the French literature. 
out to the naphtha lights and cries of the saturday night street markets of islington and the north end road into city churches on wintry afternoons into the studios of famous artists full of handsomely dressed women into the studios of artists not famous at the ends of dark and breakneck corridors to tea at the suburban homes of barmaids and chorus girls to dinners in the stables of a cavalry barracks to supper in cabmen's shelters he was possessed in some mysterious way of the passwords to doors in hoardings behind which excavations were in progress he knew by name the butchers of the deptford yards the men in the blood caked clothes so inured to blood that they may not with safety to their lives swear at one another he took me into an opium cellar within a stone's throw of oxford street and into a roof chamber to call upon certain friends of his uh, well uh, they said uh, they were fire extinguishers so i'd better not say they were bombs up down here there good report but more frequently evil we had known this side of our london as well as tumen may and our other adventures and peregrinations not of the body but of the spirit but this must be spoken of in their proper place i had arranged with mashka that scofield should bring me the whole of the work andriovsky had left behind him and he arrived late one afternoon in a four-wheeler with four great packages done up in brown paper i found him to be a big shaggy-browed red-haired raw-boned lancashire man of five-and-thirty given to confidential demonstrations at the length of a button shank quite unconscious of the gulf between his words and his right to employ them and bent on asserting an equality that i did not dispute by a rather aggressive use of my surname andriovsky had appointed him his executor and he had ever the air of suspecting that the appointment was going to be challenged i am glad to be associated with ye in this melancholy duty harrison he said now we won't waste words miss andreovsky has told me precisely how matters stand i had as you know the honour to be poor michael's close friend for a period of five years and my knowledge of him is entirely at your disposal i answered that i should be seriously handicapped without it just so it is miss andreovsky's desire that we should pull together now in the first place what is your idea about the form the book should take in the first place if you don't mind i replied perhaps we'd better run over together the things you've brought the daylight will be gone soon just as you like harrison he said just as you like it's all the same to me i cleared the space about my writing table at the window and we turned to the artistic remains of michael andreovsky i was astonished first at the enormous quantity of the stuff and next at its utter and complete revelation of the man in a flash i realized how superb that portion at least of the book was going to be and scofield explained that the work he had brought represented but a fraction of the whole that was at our disposal you know with what foolish generosity poor michael always gave his things away he said hollard has a grand set so has connolly and from time to time he behaved very handsomely to myself artists of very considerable talents both hollard and connolly are michael thought very highly of their abilities they expressed the deepest interest in the shape your work will take and that reminds me 
I myself have drafted a rough scenario of the form it appeared to me the life might with advantage be cast in. A purely private opinion, ye'll understand, Harrison, which he'll be entirely at liberty to disregard. Well, let's finish with the work first, I said. With boards, loose sheets, scraps of paper, notes, studies, canvases stretched and stripped from their stretches, we paved half the library floor, scoffled keeping up all the time a running fire of grand, grand, a masterpiece, a gem, that Harrison. They were all that he said, and presently I ceased to hear his voice. The splendor of the work issued undimmed even from the severe test of Scofield's praise. And I thought again with pride how I, I was the only man living who could adequately write that life. Aren't they grand, aren't they great, Scoffle chanted monotonously. They are, I replied, coming to a consciousness of his presence again. But what's that? Secretively he had kept one package until the last. He now removed its wrappings and set it against the chair. There, he cried. I'll thank you, Harrison, for your opinion of that. It was the portrait Andreovsky had refused to sell me, a portrait of himself. The portrait was the climax of the display. The Lancastrians still talked, but I profoundly moved, mechanically gathered up the drawings from the floor and returned them to their proper packages and folios. I was dining at home alone that evening, and for form's sake I asked this faithful dog of Andreovsky's to share my meal. But he excused himself. He was dining with Hollard and Connolly. When the drawings were all put away, all save that portrait, he gave an inquisitive glance round my library. It was the same glance as Mashka had given when she had feared to intrude on my time. But Scofield did these things with a much more heavy hand. He departed, but not before telling me that even my mansion contained such treasures as it had never held before. That evening, after glancing at Scofield's scenario, I carefully folded it up again for return to him, lest, when the book should appear, he should miss the pleasure of saying that I had had his guidance, but had disregarded it. Then I sat down at my writing table and took out the loose notes I had made. I made other jottings, each on a blank sheet for subsequent amplification, and the sheets overspread the large leather-topped table and thrust one another up the standard of the incandescent with the pearly silk shade. The firelight shone low and richly in the dusky spaces of the large apartment, and the thick carpet and the double doors made the place so quiet that I could hear my watch ticking in my pocket. I worked for an hour, and then, for the purpose of making yet other notes, I rose crossed the room and took down the three or four illustrated books to which, in the earlier part of his career, Andreovsky had put his name. I carried them to the table and twinkled as I opened the first of them. It was a book of poems, and in making the designs for them, Andreovsky had certainly not found for himself. Almost any one of these art shades, as he had called them, could have done the thing equally well, and I twinkled again. I did not propose to have much mercy on that. Already Scofield's words had given birth to a suspicion in my mind that Andreovsky, in permitting these fellows, Hallard, Connolly and the rest, to suppose that he thought highly of them and their work, had been giving play to that malicious humor of his. And they naturally did not see the joke. 
That joke too was between himself dead and me preparing to write his life. As if he had been there to hear me, I chuckled and spoke in a low voice. You were pulling their legs, Michael, you know. A little rough on them you were. But there's a book here of yours that I'm going to tell the truth about. You and I won't pretend to one another. It's a rotten book, and both you and I know it. I don't know what it was that caused me suddenly to see just then something that I had been looking at long enough without seeing, that portrait of himself that I had sat leaning against the back of a chair at the end of my writing table. It stood there just within the soft penumbra of shadow cast by the silk-shaded light. The canvas had been enlarged, the seam of it clumsily sewn by Andreovsky's own hand. But in that half-light, the rough ridge of paint did not show, and I confess that the position and effect of the thing startled me for a moment. Had I cared to play a trick with my fancy, I could have imagined the head wagging from side to side, with such rage and fire was it painted. He had had the temerity to dash a reflection across one of the glasses of his spectacles, concealing the eye behind it. The next moment I had given a short laugh. So, you're there, are you? Well, I know you agree very heartily about that book of poems. Hey-ho, if I remember rightly, you made more money out of that book than out of the others put together. But I'm going to tell the truth about it. I know better, you know. Chancing before I turned in that night to reopen one of his folios, I came across a drawing there by accident, I don't doubt, that confirmed me in my suspicion that Andreovsky had had his quiet joke with Schofield, Hallard, Connolly and Co. It was a sketch of Schofield's imitative, deplorable, a dreadful show-up of incapacity. Well enough drawn in a sense it was, and I remembered how Andreovsky had ever urged that drawing of itself did not exist. I winked at the portrait. I saw his point. He himself had no peer, and rather than invite comparison with stars of the second magnitude, he chose his intimates from among the peddlers of the wares that had had the least possible connection with his art. He too had understood that the compromise must be entirely accepted or totally refused, and while in the divergence of our paths he had done the one thing and I the other, we had each done it thoroughly with vigor and with persistence and each could esteem the other, if not as a co-worker, at least as an honorable and out-and-out -out opposite. 3. Within a fortnight I was so deep in my task that, in the realist sense, the greater part of my life was in the past. The significance of those extraordinary peregrinations of ours had been in the opportunity they had afforded for a communion of brain and spirit of unusual rarity and all this determined to my work with the accumulated force of its long penning up. I have spoken of Andreovsky's contempt for such as had the conception of their work that it was something they did as distinct from something they were, and unless I succeed in making it plain that not as a mere figure of speech and loose hyperbole, but starkly and literally, Andreovsky was everything he did, my tale will be pointless. There was not one of the basic facts of life, of faith, honor, truth-speaking, falsehood, betrayal, sin, that he did not turn, not to moral interpretations as others do, 
but to the holy purposes of his noble and passionate art for any man sin is only mortal when it is sin against that which he knows to be immortally true and the things andriovsky knew to be immortally true were the things that he had gone down into the depths in order to bring forth and place upon his paper or canvas these things are not for the perusal of many unless you love the things that he loved with a fervor comparable in kind if not in degree with his own you may not come near them truth the highest thing a man may keep he said cannot be brought down a man only attains it by proving his right to it and i think i need not further state his views on the democratization of art of any result from the elaborate processes of art education he held out no hope whatever it is in a man or it isn't he ever declared if it is he must bring it out for himself if it isn't let him turn to something useful and have done with it i need not press the point that in these things he was almost a solitary he made of these general despotic principles the fiercest personal applications i have heard his passionate outbreak of thief liar fool over a drawing when it had seemed to him that a man has not vouched with the safety of his immortal soul for the shapes and lines he has committed to it i have seen him get into such a rage with the eyes of the artist upon him i have heard the ice and vinegar of his words when a good man for money has consented to modify and emasculate his work and there lingers in my memory his side of a telephone conversation in which he told the publisher who had suggested that he should do the same thing precisely what he thought of him and on the other hand he once walked from Oldgate to Putney Hill with a loose heel on one of his boots to see a man of whom he had seen but a single drawing. See him he did, too, in spite of the man's footman, his liveried parlour maid, and the daunting effect of the electric brougham at the door. He is a good man, he said to me afterwards, ruefully looking at the place where his boot heel had been. You've got to take your good where you find it i don't care whether he's a rich amateur or skin and grief in a garret as long as he's got the stuff in him nobody else could have fetched me up from the east end this afternoon so long see you in a week or so this was the only time i ever knew him break that sacred time in which he celebrated each year the passover and the feast of tabernacles i doubt whether this observance of the ritual of his faith was of more essential importance to him than that other philosophical religion towards which he sometimes leaned i have said what his real religion was but to the life with these things and others as a beginning i began to add page to page phase to phase and in a time the shortness of which astonished myself I had pretty well covered the whole of the first ten years of our friendship. Mashka called rather less and scoffed rather more frequently than I could have wished, and my surmise that he at least was in love with her quickly became a certainty. This was to be seen when they called together. It was when they came together that something else also became apparent this was their slightly derisive attitude towards the means by which i had attained my success 
It was not the less noticeable that it took the form of compliments on the outward and visible results. Simply I could manage them. Together they were inclined to get a little out of hand. I could have taxed them fairly and squarely with this singly or together, but for one thing, the beautiful ease with which their life was proceeding. Never had I felt so completely en rapport with my subject. So beautifully was the thing running that I had had the idle fancy of some actual urge from Andreovsky himself. And each night, before sitting down to work, I set his portrait at my desk's end, as if it had been some kind of an observance. The most beautiful result of all was that I felt what I had not felt for five years, that I too was not doing my work, but actually living and being it. At times I took up the sheets I had written, as ignorant of their contents as if they had proceeded from another pen, so freshly they came to me. And once I vow I found in my own handwriting a Polish name that I might, it is true, have subconsciously heard at some time or other, but there stead no chord in my memory even when I saw it written. Mashka checked and confirmed it afterwards and I did not tell her by what odd circumstance it had issued from my pen. The day did come, however, when I found I must have it out with Scofield about this superciliousness I have mentioned. The fortune had just begun to print the third series of my Martin Renard, and this had been made the occasion of another of Scofield's ponderous compliments. I acknowledged it with none too much graciousness, and then he said, I've no doubt, Harrison, that by this time the famous sleuth hound of crime has become quite a creature of flesh and blood to ye. It was a tone as much as the words that riled me, and I replied that his doubts or the lack of them were a privacy with which I did not wish to meddle. From being merely a bore, the fellow was rapidly becoming insolent. But I opine he'll get wearisome now and then, and in that case poor Michael's life will come as a grand relaxation, he next observed. If I meant to have it out, here was my opportunity. I should have thought you'd have traced a closer connection than that between the two things I remarked. He shot a quick glance at me from beneath his shaggy, russet brows. How so? I see very little connection, he said suspiciously. There's this connection, that while you speak with some freedom of what I do, you are quite willing to take advantage of it when it serves your turn. Advantage, Harrison, he said slowly, of the advertisement Martin Renard gives you. I must point out that you condone a thing when you accept the benefit of it. Either you shouldn't have come to me at all, or you should deny yourself the gratification of these slurs. Slurs, he repeated loweringly. Both of you, you and Miss Andreovsky or Mashka, as I call her, too cool. Don't suppose I don't know as well as you do the exact worth of my sleuth hound, as you call him. You didn't come to me solely because I knew Andreovsky well. You came because I've got the ear of the public also. And I tell you plainly that, however much you dislike it, Michael's fame, as far as I am of any use to him, depends on the popularity of Martin Renard. He shook his big head. This is what I feared, she said. More, I continued, you can depend upon it that Michael, wherever he is, knows all about that. 
Aye, aye, he said sagely. I misdoubt your own artistic souls only to be saved by the writing of for Michael's life, Harrison. Leave that to me and Michael. We'll settle that. In the meantime, if you don't like it, write and publish the life yourself. He bent his brows on me. It's precisely what I wanted to do from the very first, he said. If you'd care to accept my symposium and the spirit in which it was offered, I cannot see that the life would have suffered. But now, when you're next in need of my services, you'll may be sent for me. He took up his hat, I assured him, and let him take it in what sense he liked that I could do so. And he left me. Not for a single moment did I intend that they should bounce me like that. With or without their sanction and countenance, I intended to write and publish that life. Scofield in my own house, too, had had the advantage that a poor and ill-dressed man has over one who is not poor and ill-dressed. But my duty, first of all, was neither to him nor to Mashka, but to my friend. The worst of it was, however, that I had begun dimly to suspect that the Lancastrian had hit at least one nail on the head. Your artistic soul's only to be saved by writing poor Michael's life, he had informed me and it was truer than I found it pleasant to believe. Perhaps, after all, my first duty was not to Andreovsky, but to myself. I could have kicked myself that the fool had been perspicacious enough to see it, but that did not alter the fact. I saw that in the sense in which Andreovsky understood sin, I had sinned. My only defense lay in the magnitude of my sin. I had sinned thoroughly out and out, and with a will. It had been the only respectable way, Andreovsky's own way, when he had cut the company of an academician to hobnob with a vagabond. I had at least instituted no comparison, lowered no ideal, was innocent of the accursed attitude of facing both ways that degrades all lovely and moving things. I was by a paradox too black a sinner not to hope for redemption. I fell into a long musing on these things. Had any of the admirers of Martin Renard entered the library of his author that night, he would have seen an interesting thing. He would have seen the creator of that idol of clerks and messenger lads and fourth-form boys frankly putting the case before a portrait popped up on a chair. He would have had that popular author haranguing, pleading curiously on his defense, turning the thing this way and that. If you'd gone over Michael, that author argued, you'd have done precisely the same thing. If I'd stuck it out, we were, after all, all of a kind. We've got to be one thing or the other, isn't that so, Andreovsky? Since I made up my mind, I faced only one way, only one way. I've kept your ideal and theirs entirely separate and distinct. Not one single beautiful phrase will you find in the Martin Renards. I've cut them out, everyone. I may have ceased to worship, but I've profaned no temple. And think what I might have done, what they all do. They deal out the slush, but with an apologetic glance at the art shades. Oh, Harrison, he does that detective rubbish, but that's not Harrison. If Harrison liked to drop that, he could be a fine artist. I haven't done that. I haven't run with the hare and hunted with the hounds. 
I am just Harrison who does that detective rubbish. These other chaps, Schofield and Connolly, they are the real sinners, Michael. The fellows who can't make up their minds to be one thing or the other. Artists of considerable abilities. Ha ha. Of course you know Mashka's going to marry the chap. What'll they do, do you think? He'll scrape up a few pounds out of the stoop where I find thousands. Marry her, and they'll set up a saloon and talk the stuff the chairs talked that night, you remember? But you wait until I finish your life. I laid it all before him, almost as if I sought to propitiate him. I might have been courting his patronage for his own life. Then, with a start, I came to, to find myself talking nonsense to the porter that years before Andreovsky had refused to sell me. End of chapter 9, part 1, recording by Fanny Thessaloniki, Greece.